Remember that time uh, that we elected Jesse Ventura to be our governor? <laughs> that was awesome, right? I mean, so many good memories. This guy had such a resume. I mean, we had Jesse the Body Ventura. We had Jesse the Wrestler Ventura. We had Jesse the Predator Hunter with Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? All these different roles. We had Jesse our governor. Dude, our governor had an action figure. I'm just saying. Proof is in the pudding. <laughs> I'm just saying, and so many good quotes. I mean, obviously, like, the movie lines that probably we all remember, lines like, I ain't got time to bleed. That doesn't even make any sense. But also real-life quotes. He said things like, I'd rather be uncomfortable with the truth than to be lied to in comfort. That's just my nature. It's actually pretty sage wisdom, right? Or, I'm going to put on my gravestone, he never owned a cell phone. I think that's very wise. We should all live to that. Or this one. In wrestling, my mustache made me look more like a villain. A good mustache can give you the look of the devil. We decided to test that. Let's see if it's true. I'm just saying. It might be, it might be the Giants jersey that's doing it, but I'm going, I'm going with the, the mustache. It's funny. It's true. It's sage wisdom. How about this one? Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. Way less funny, right? It tells people to go out and stick their noses in other people's business. Ouch! I like those other ones. Way funnier. But is it true? I mean, that is certainly the, 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 the common cultural trope right now about Christians. And I'm guessing there are some of you maybe in the room, and some of you certainly at home, that hear that. And think that, yeah, I mean, that's been my experience of Christians in the past. Some people walk away from Christianity because they see hypocrisy, they see the scandals, they see the, the ways in which we've failed to live up to the calling of Christ. But that wasn't, that wasn't my story. Uh, I actually grew up surrounded by amazing Christians who loved really, really well and loved consistently and lived this out in remarkable ways. That wasn't the struggle that I faced. But as I began to have questions about faith, about some of the very basic tenets of faith, I realized that there were a lot of ideas out there, that Jesus you know, was one of many sort of this Messiah archetype that existed in all kinds of religions throughout the world's history, that, that many religions had a narrative involving like the mythology of a virgin birth, that there were lots of really compelling narration, uh, narratives around creation, some, and, and about the flood, and about all these stories the whole canonization process of the Bible was just a big sham. Basically a power play by a bunch of powerful men in the 4th century who could manipulate things to the way that they wanted it to be. I had questions. How do I know if any of this stuff that I'm learning is true? And more often than not, when I brought those questions to my Christian friends, the response I got was something like, well, that's what faith is. They, they, they quote scripture, they say, now faith is what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And yes, that's scripture, and it's absolutely true, but the message that I heard as a teenager was you have to have blind faith and hope that it's true. And I just couldn't abide that. It brought me to this question. Blind faith is a choice, but is it a good choice? Is it a place to write that down in your notes? I want to wrestle a little bit with that today. It's a choice, but is it a good choice to make? They also argued the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true and it's the authoritative word of God. 
which is great if you believe it's true and the authoritative word of God. But if you don't, that's just circular reasoning. It doesn't help at all. So my only evidence of whether the Bible was true was circular reasoning and blind faith in a moral system that seemed to work out well for most, but not all, almost never in the Bible because all of Jesus' followers were killed. That was my proof that this was true. Wallace, in his book, Cold Case Christianity, which if you have not yet gotten, cannot we, we do get no pr- proceeds from this at all, but it's a great book, an easy read. A lot of them, if you haven't read it, he wrestles with a similar question. He says, were the gospel narratives just good eyewitness accounts or only moralistic mythology? Wallace had been a, a lifelong atheist and skeptic who spent years as a homicide detective examining, investigating these cold cases that were years beyond the events anymore. Murder cases that had happened years and years ago were never resolved. And as a cold case investigator, Wallace often didn't have access to the original witnesses, didn't have access to the original people that were involved in the case. He had to rely on, on the written accounts of these people that were there at the time. The police reports, the testimonies of the original eyewitnesses to the event, the evidence that was originally collected, and from that, try to piece together a picture of what really happened, what the truth really was. And it occurred to him that he could take these same principles, these industry standard best practices in investigation and apply them to the gospel accounts to determine, is there truth? Does this smell of truth? And what he found not only led him to believe, but to reshape his whole life around who the gospels presented Jesus to be on the back cover of the book. It says this words, you can believe because of the evidence not in spite of it. I love that. That, That's been true in my experience as well. He goes on to say, I used to think that faith as the opposite of reason. In this characterization of the dichotomy, I believed that atheists were reasonable free thinkers, while believers were simple mindless drones who blindly followed the unreasonable teachings of their leadership. But if you think about it, faith is actually the opposite of unbelief, not reason. As I began to read through the Bible as a skeptic, I came to understand that the biblical definition of faith is a well-placed and reasonable inference based on evidence. I now understand that it's possible for reasonable people to examine the evidence and conclude that Christianity is true. Our belief system doesn't have to be weak-minded or simple blind faith. There's a place to write this down. Our belief can, and I would argue should, be rooted in evidence. And that's good news for skeptics like me. There's real evidence that points to the veracity of these gospel claims about who Jesus was. Today we're continuing in in the series that we've been in, Why Jesus, looking at this one man's life that changed the course of history. His arrival had an impact that changed the world, and his followers have for the last 2,000 years and continuing his teaching and his ministry and his love. I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Luke, chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would encourage you to go to Bible.com. They've got amazing resources. I also use BibleGateway.com a lot. You can get every translation of the Bible there is out there. Read with me from Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Many people have set out to write an account about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you could be certain of the truth 
of everything you were taught. It's a passage that we oftentimes pull out at Christmas, but it's a passage that's really about his process, his investigation. Luke, as many of you know, uh, was authored by a Gentile physician by the name of Luke, who had converted to Christianity through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And this was an intelligent, well-educated man who really valued the process, the research, the findings, the truth. You see it in these verses. You know, I've carefully investigated all these eyewitnesses' reports. I've read through them. I've worked the beat. I've done the footwork so that I can now present these accounts to you confident and so that you can be confident that these accounts are true. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, goes to these great lengths to demonstrate that the Jesus story he's telling is historical. It's accurate. The accounts are authentic. This is an accurate biography of Jesus of Nazareth. There's a place to write this in your notes. The Gospels claim to be biographies. All of them make that claim, claim to be true. But are they? How do we know? I mean, just because something says it's true doesn't mean it's true, right? If you don't believe that the Bible's authoritative, how can we know? Well, let's approach that question like Wallace does. Let's investigate. They claim to be eyewitnesses. What tools do we have at our disposal to examine these eyewitnesses' accounts to determine what is true? Wallace says there's four tests that should be applied to all eyewitness accounts. First of all, were they present? Were, were these people even at the scene? Oftentimes in investigations, there's people who come in and who want to influence by telling their story, who claim that they were there and they saw it all happen. But in time, you realize they weren't, and they're just trying to manipulate the case. So were they present? Was their account corroborated? Can their testimony, their account, be corroborated by other witnesses? If they were present and if it could be corroborated, is, is their account accurate? Can their testimony or what evidence is there that their account is, is what actually happened? And then finally, unbiased. Are the witnesses unbiased in their accounts? Do they ha- what do they have to gain if the jury goes one way or the jury goes the other way? Is there a bias to the story? So let's apply those simple principles to these gospel accounts who claim to be eyewitnesses. This is going to be an overview, and I strongly encourage you to get the book. He goes into such great detail about his process on this. So we're going to accomplish some of that, but it's going to be an overview this morning. First, wow, take two seconds and breathe. Slow down. We're all good. <laughs> this is going to be an overview. Here we go. Were they present? There are lots of tools linguistically that we can use to analyze these texts. You know, things like, is the writing style and the language used consistent with the writing and the language style of the day? Does Matthew, for instance, sound like and write like and use language like you'd expect a first century Jewish tax collector who's working in cahoots with the Roman occupiers? <laughs> you know? Does the language used in Luke's formal account consistently match other accounts written by professionals at that time and in that place, in that format? Do the authors accurately describe locations and events in a a manner that's consistent with what a writer in that time and in that place would have reported? Are there errors in times, locations, descriptions of events, or people, the sequence of events that would indicate that this was written at a different time and in a different place? And across the board, the Gospels meet these expectations. Across the board, there's evidence in the text themselves that these were written by people in the now. What's interesting to me, one of the ones that popped out that I had never thought of before, is this question. Is there any knowledge that the author has that a person writing at that time or place wouldn't have? 
It's interesting. One of the tells for detectives is if the witnesses suddenly know something that they couldn't have possibly known, there's a really good chance they might be lying. <laughs> so you can apply that same principle here to the Gospels. The Gospel authors, in fact, all of the New Testament authors, seem to have absolutely no knowledge of anything that occurred after AD, about AD 60. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see any evidence of it. For instance, Luke, the author of Acts and Luke, who's so concerned with details, goes into elaborate details describing the life and ministry of Paul and Peter, yet mentions nothing about their martyrdom in AD 64 and AD 65. And these were high-profile leaders whose martyrdom would have been a significant argument for the veracity of their claims. And yet Luke and Acts, and in fact the whole rest of the New Testament, makes absolutely no mention of it at all. James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was martyred in 62 AD. And Luke says nothing about it, even though he had recounted the other martyrs like Stephen and James, the brother of John. If it was written later, wouldn't these important case-proving details have been included? Jesus, in Matthew 24, predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be torn down and destroyed by the Rome, by Rome. Yet the New Testament officers seem authors seem completely unaware that his prediction comes to pass in AD 70. This would have been really helpful to their case, right? This would have been proof that Jesus was right, that he could see the future. But it doesn't appear in any of these Gospels. In fact, it appears nowhere in the New Testament at all, even though it would have been really helpful for their arguments to include it. It's also evidence that these authors have knowledge of one another's writing. They knew what the other people had written in their accounts, their versions of the story. They knew that there were inconsistencies, that they had told the stories in different ways. And yet, there's no attempt to synthesize or harmonize these apparent inconsistencies. If they were making it all up, wouldn't they at least have gotten together and gotten their story straight before writing it down and sending it all over the world? But they don't. And from a forensic standpoint, that looks like evidence that they were actually there. This is actually their account, which brings us to sort of a common argument that I've heard. Yeah, but aren't there inconsistencies within these different accounts? Yes, I just said that. <laughs> that's, that's fair, there are, but that doesn't mean the accounts aren't both true and accurate, even if they're not identical. In the forensics world, this is known as eyewitness variability. Chris talked a little bit about this early on. No two eyewitnesses have the same experience, and reporting as witnesses to the crime they oftentimes, therefore, don't have the same story. Perception is reality, right? Their experience in the event would have been influenced by their perspective, their relationship to those involved, their own inferences, their own knowledge and expertise, lots of factors. Peter, as a fisherman, would have seen things differently and experienced things differently, reported things differently than Matthew, a tax collector, or Luke, a doctor. They'll notice different things. Different elements will stand out to them as more important or less important than the other accounts. This is extremely common in the forensic world, the investigative world, and shouldn't surprise us in the gospel accounts either. In fact, in a crime investigation, if the stories of multiple witnesses line up too much, it's actually a red flag for investigators. It's actually evidence that they've come together, they've you know, put together this story and compiled it all to remove any conflicting details. It's important to point out, the gospel writers could have done that. The writers could have gotten together and scripted the whole thing, but they didn't. And that's evidence that it's real. 
So, it's reasonable to believe that they were present, but were they accurate? Another common argument against the Gospels is some variation of, yeah, but isn't there proof that later scribes, when they're copying the Bible, just added a bunch of stuff? <sighs> sort of. I mean, there are a few instances we could see where, like, specific words were added uh, to bring clarity to something, you know? Um, but they didn't change the meaning of it at all. There are even some accounts where entire stories are added to the text at a later date. Uh, for instance, one of the ones that's press well-known is the story of the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John. The men all want to stone her, and Jesus famously says, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It's a great story, a favorite of many. problem is it doesn't appear in any of the early manuscripts. It's a phenomenal story, but it doesn't appear there. So yeah, I mean, there are a few examples, but think about it. How do we even know that these stories were added? Without, without the little note in our Bible to tell us, how did these investigators know that the story was added later? We know it because we have a standard against which we can hold it. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of early manuscripts from the first century that all don't include that story. Did it happen? Maybe. But it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. The original authors didn't include it. And I think it's a popular argument that if there are any errors at all, then you should just not believe any of it. We can identify. We can identify these errors, however. And most Bibles actually acknowledge that. The ESV actually removed that story from John 8. You won't find it in there. The NLT puts a little note saying this was not in the earliest manuscripts. And none of these editions in any way significantly changed the meaning of the passage. Is the picture of Jesus conveyed in John 8 different without that story in it? No. Is it different with the story in it? No. It's the same picture of Jesus. Wallace, again in his book, invites us to imagine it like this. Imagine you went to your puzzle drawer at home, and mine is notoriously messy, <laughs> and you're going to do a puzzle, and as you're doing the puzzle, you realize you've got some pieces that don't necessarily fit, you've got some coins, maybe some chess pieces, some gum, <laughs> who knows. Does the presence of those other pieces make the puzzle invalid? No. Wallace says it this way. Does the presence of these non-puzzle pieces in the drawer invalidate the reliability of the pieces? No. The non-puzzle pieces can quickly and easily be identified and set aside. It's called artifacts. And all of the ancient texts have them. If we reject the reliability of the Gospels based on a few additions, then we would have to reject the writings of Plato, Herodotus, Euripides, Aristotle, Homer, and on and on and on. These manuscripts were from much later dates than, than, than these. They're much less numerous and they're far less reliable. Another common argument some variation on this. Yeah, but couldn't the Gospels have been written or edited hundreds of years later? That's fair. Let's look at it. Let's investigate it. Let's be investigators. Put on our little investigator hats. I'm so glad I didn't bring an investigator hat. That would just be corny. Often, often the argument that's presented is that in, in AD 363, at the Council of Laodicea, basically this group of powerful religious leaders came together and they just kind of arbitrarily chose what books would be included in the official canon of Scripture. And it's easy to imagine, therefore, that they would simply include the books that they agreed with, exclude any books they didn't agree with, and write new books to fill in the gaps for anything that was missing. Right? That's sort of the argument that's presented. And that's fair. I mean, that's, it's absolutely possible. We, we know for sure that the only complete entire New Testament text that we have, the very earliest New Testament text 
that we have is called Codex Sinaiticus, because it was found at the Mount Sinai Cathedral. It's been dated to around 350 AD. It's, it's a complete copy of the New Testament that we found. It was from 350 AD, which in some ways is really old, but 350 years is a whole lot of time. A whole lot could get written, a whole lot could get added, a whole lot could get changed. How do we know that it wasn't? How do we know that the evidence wasn't tampered with? Well, again, in the forensic world, there's this thing called chain of evidence. In criminal investigations, it's critically important that evidence is properly captured, logged, documented, filed, stored, all those things. It's called the chain of evidence. One error, one misfiling, one sloppy treatment of a box of evidence would allow someone to tamper with the evidence can ruin a whole case. It's a big deal. Evidence is only accurate if it's not been messed with, right? Well, we have detailed records of how this evidence, these gospel accounts, meticulously kept and passed down from one gospel writer to the next, or from one gospel writer to their disciples. The Apostle John, for instance, had a student named Ignatius. It's interesting as I was reading this, the early church believed that Ignatius was one of those children that Jesus called and blessed. In Mark 4, we talk about it every time we do a baptism or dedication. That's what church history says this person was. He would go on to become the bishop of Antioch, where he wrote letters to the other churches, in which it was apparent that he, Ignatius, fully believed that they already had all these gospel texts, that they were already treating them as scripture. It's also proven from these letters that he knew Jesus personally, he knew the apostles personally, and even suggested that many of his readers of his letter would have also known Jesus and his apostles. He was the first keeper of that evidence, the book of John. John also taught Polycarp. These are names you maybe remember from church history or from other quotations. He wanted to become the Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp also wrote well-documented letters that we have, in which it's clear that he personally knew the apostles, as did his audience. And Polycarp, in the first century, quoted a reference 14 to 16 of the other New Testament books. They were already here in the first century, decades after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, treating these books as scripture. Together, Ignatius and Polycarp taught a man called Irenaeus, who went on to teach Hippolypetus. <laughs> and with each handoff, the details were meticulously presented and preserved and documented in the letters that they sent, many of which we have today. We have copies of these letters referencing these people, these events, these books of the Bible. And it wasn't just true with John. We have similar and many of these accounts of the people that Paul taught, because he taught so many people, and each of them was given these copies of these teachings and these letters, passed from one to the next bearer. The most fascinating one to me of all is that we have a complete and direct line from the Apostle Peter all the way to the 4th century when the Council of Laodicea happened. We know each of the handoffs, each of the people, and each of the dates that this was given, each of these evidence bearers. We know that these evidence bearers brought these books around the world to, to Egypt and to India and to Europe where they were meticulously copied and shared, resulting in countless copies all over the world, just as Jesus predicted what happened. By comparison, the earliest copies of the writings of the Greek historian Herodotus that, that we have, they were written 500 years after the events they claimed to describe. We have a total of eight copies of his book, his most famous book, The Histories, and yet we don't apply, no one applies the same level of skeptical scrutiny to that text as is applied 
to the New Testament texts for which we have far more copies, far more evidence, which were far more reliable. Friends, the Council of Laodicea in 8363 didn't create the canon. They confirmed what the church already recognized and used as the canon since the first century. It was remarkable to me as well as I was doing this research that because of how the chain of evidence was preserved and disseminated and distributed all over the world, we now have thousands of these early ancient New Testament manuscripts all over the world. And you'd think the telephone game would have happened, right? Like, oh, I've got the Egypt version. Oh, I've got the Indian version. That's not what happened. These texts, when you line up, the Egypt texts match. The India texts match the European texts. They corroborate each other, which leads us very conveniently to the next question. <laughs> Can these accounts be corroborated A wise detective listens to all the varying eyewitness accounts to get a complete picture of the story, how their accounts corroborate or disprove one another, and how they'll fill in the missing details from the other accounts. The gospel accounts, while eyewitness stories were told differently sometimes, they also confirm and corroborate with one another and fill in blanks on the life of Jesus. Wallace references the example of Jesus calling his disciples, okay? He says, when Matthew tells the story, Matthew basically says, Jesus walked in and said, follow me. And they just dropped their nets, they dropped their livelihood, they dropped their wives, and just like followed Jesus. So it makes sense to look at that and go, that doesn't seem reasonable. That, that sounds made up. That's not, people don't do that, right? When Luke, however, tells the same story, it's very, very different. When Luke tells the story, Jesus had been teaching all day, and there were huge crowds that were surrounding him, and it pushed him all the way down to the banks of the lake. And he looked back at the fishermen who were just coming in from having been out all night long fishing. And Jesus says, can you, can you take me out on the water? I want to continue to preach. So they take him out on the water, and he preaches. And you can, if you've ever been on a lake, you know, like, voices carry on water. I mean, this was like a first century amplification system, right? So Jesus is preaching, he continues preaching. He turns to Peter, and he says, hey, throw your nets in the water. And Peter says, dude, we've been out all night long. We're beat. There are no fish, but whatevs. Throws the net in. And as we know, he begins reeling in fish and fish and fish to the point that the boat is filling with fish and they have to call another boat to come. And then that boat is filled with fish to the point that both boats are about to sink. And it's at that point that Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Something in the story sounds a lot more credible, right? Was Matthew inconsistent with Luke's account? Yes. Was Matthew's account wrong? No. For whatever reason, Matthew didn't think those details were important to include, and Luke did. They corroborate, and they also fill in the missing pieces for us. Internal corroboration is what that's called, and it's helpful. But to me, it's not that surprising that people that believe the same thing would agree on the books they wrote. So, I mean, it's helpful, but external communication. What do people outside of the faith, outside of the belief system, believe about it? Wallace writes this, in a similar way... Ancient observers and writers who were hostile to Christianity reluctantly admitted several key facts that corroborate the claims of the Christian eyewitnesses, even though they denied that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Josephus, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, was a contemporary of Jesus, not a Christian. He was a Jewish philosopher and theologian and historian, not a fan of the Christian movement. He was just a historian, and he wrote these words. At this time, there was a wise man who's called Jesus. His conduct was good, he was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. 
And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonder. Josephus doesn't believe that he's the Messiah. He doesn't believe the claims, but he corroborates the story, corroborates the events. Thallus, a Samaritan historian who also lived at the time of Jesus, wrote an expansive book, The History of the Mediterranean, collecting all of the important goings-on in the Mediterranean area. He chronicled the crucifixion of the death of Jesus. He wrote this. On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake. In many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. That sure sounds a whole lot like the gospel account, right? He doesn't necessarily believe the claims about who Jesus is, but he corroborates the events as they were recorded in Scripture. Tacitus, one of the most trusted ancient Roman historians today, was a senator under Emperor uh, Vespasian, who wrote the following of Nero's response to the great fire of Rome. Chris referenced this last week. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christos, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition then thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Not a great slogan. Rome. Anyway, Tacitus worked for Rome. He certainly didn't believe any of these claims about who Jesus was, and yet he, like others, corroborates so many of the gospel details, the names that we see in our accounts he reports in his official accounts, including this most mischievous superstition, something about a resurrection that went way beyond Judea. It might be easy to dismiss internal corroborators. You know, they, they all agree anyway. But what do we do with these external, these people who are hostile to Christianity, antagonistic to Christianity? Why would they corroborate the, corroborate the accounts if they weren't true? And the list of external corroborators goes on and on. So three questions down. Were they present? Were they accurate? Can they be corroborated? This is the last question. Were they biased? Maybe. But what motive would they have had? I mean, each of these men had a good living. They had established lives. They they may have had marriages and kids and PTA meetings. You know, we, we don't know. They had good lives. They weren't inside men to begin with. What was the gain for them? We know historically that virtually all of them lived lives of poverty, often in homelessness, and they died horrific deaths by execution in some very creative ways. They became martyrs for this so-called truth. Some would argue, rightly, that martyrdom then and martyrdom now do not prove truth. History is full of people who have martyred themselves for a system or religion that they mistakenly thought was true. We see that on the news now, Right? But think about it, this is, this is different. These men were first-hand witnesses, not generations removed, who believed and put their trust in a system or a faith or a religion. These were first-hand eyewitnesses. We have to ask ourselves, would they have lived those lives and died those deaths 
for something that they absolutely incontrovertibly knew was a lie. It seems unreasonable to think so. So in light of all of that, is there still room for doubt? Yes. Apparently, there is. Throughout this series, it's driven me a little bit crazy. Maybe you've noticed it too. We keep quoting this amazing, remarkable man from an amazing, remarkable book called The Triumph of Christianity by Bart Ehrman. Basically, this author goes through it and, and illustrates how Christianity changed the world. The world is an infinitely better place because of this historical man who changed the world and whose church built the goodness that is the world. And yet, in the face of all of that evidence, he still doesn't believe. I know he's smarter than me. What, where, where does he rest his doubt? He affirms all of the historicity of Joshua and the Jesus, which he affirms the impact of the Christ's life, the death, the supposed resurrection they had in the world. He sees all kinds of evidence, but he's volitionally making a decision to not believe in the supernatural. He's still stuck at supposed resurrection. He believes the gospel accounts are accurate in every way, with the small exception of all that supernatural stuff. <laughs> Right? The books are good. The lessons are good. Jesus was good. Christians did good. But miracles don't happen. Resurrection doesn't happen. The supernatural doesn't happen. There's a name for that. It's called philosophical materialism. It's, it's literally the oldest tradition in Western philosophy that predates Socrates, and it's been adopted through most of the history of Western society. It basically argues on the assistance on direct observation of nature, and explaining everything that happens in the world in terms of the laws of science. Friends, that's a choice. I mean, that's basically saying if science can't prove it, I won't believe it, even in the face of solid evidence. And that's just where Ehrman's at. He's saying, I see the evidence, but miracles don't happen, so therefore it can't be true. That's where he's at. Where are you at? Maybe a doubter? It's okay. Maybe you're a blind faith follower. Maybe you're a critically thinking investigator. Where are you at? Why are you there? What would it take for you to take that next step toward answering the question, why? Jesus, I think there's an invitation for all of us in that. No matter where you are on that journey, if you're a blind faith follower, I would say, boy, there's great evidence. You don't need to be. Are you really ready to present an answer for the hope that you have. Get curious. The Gospels will stand up to examination. Don't be afraid of it. Be an investigator, not just a cynic. Be skeptical. I am. You should bring that to the investigation, but also bring an open mind. Also, don't decide in advance what can't be the truth. Like miracles, for instance. Uh, I already mentioned it. I would say read Cold Case Christianity. Again, it's available at manual.church slash Jesus. It's a great book. My hope is that over the course of this series, over the course of the last three weeks, we've helped some of you, and hopefully more, to move from doubt that to examine that. And to move from examine that to maybe even belief that. Belief that Jesus was a real person who really existed and who had a real impact. That his life and the accomplishments that he made are real and documented. Perhaps then even move from belief that to belief in. Move from 
okay, I believe that Jesus lived, to I believe in the life that Jesus gives. Move from I believe that Jesus' teachings were good, to I believe in Jesus. I believe in the fact that he is the way and the truth and the life. Believing that Jesus exists is very different than believing in Jesus' presence and action and spirit at work now. Most of all, our invitation to all of you, to you watching at home, is to stay on this journey with us. Don't check out. Stay with it. There's no such thing as 100% proof. Maybe, maybe none of this is conclusive for you, but if there's even a chance that what Jesus said is true, isn't it worth investigating? Pray with me. God, we thank you. We thank you for the minds that are able to look at your word critically and examine the evidence that is there. God, I pray that uh, most of all, you would open our hearts and our minds to the possibility that what you said, what you did, what you claimed to be is true. To lean into that possibility and allow you freedom, allow you to shape and mold, allow you to reveal yourself to us. We ask that you do that. In the name of Jesus, amen.